Hey, Scott here. Thanks for joining us on the Flyover Country podcast. I'm really excited about this week's guest. It's someone I've gotten to know over the last few years and have really come to admire. It's David Axelrod, who is the director of the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics. You know him from CNN. He's a senior contributor uh, from CNN. He was a senior advisor to former President Barack Obama on his campaign and in the White House. He joined me for a long conversation this week, almost an hour. We talked about the Biden agenda. Is BBB, quote, too big to fail? Hear what David Axelrod thinks about that. He'll opine about the midterm elections and what he thinks Republican prospects are for taking over the U.S. House and Senate. He talked a lot about his views on the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict and what it says about American culture and our divisions in our society. And we did also talk about David's wife's amazing work on finding a cure for epilepsy. It is a great conversation. David Axelrod was very generous with his time. He's one of the best people I've met in media and in politics, and I really encourage you to stick around. Our conversation with David Axelrod starts now. You're on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. All right, welcome into the Flyover Country podcast with Scott Jennings. I'm here this week with our friend, my friend, former journalist, advertising executive, campaign (laughs) operative, cable pundit, podcast host, IOP director, and I'm sure I missed a few jobs in there, David Axelrod, who joins us from, are we in Chicago today, David? We are in Chicago, right here at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. I I hope to talk about that uh, in a few minutes. Thanks for for being with us today, and thanks for joining us on our uh, uh, little uh, venture here with the Flyover Country podcast. I wanted to start with you today. Uh, with talking about current events and uh, mm-hmm. given your uh, history and success in the Democratic Party, I thought I would just start right out of the gate with your assessment of Joe Biden's presidency. Is he where you, you thought he would be? And uh, uh, get your uh, analysis of how he's done so far and what he's got to do to, to uh, have a successful second year. You know, it really uh, depends, Scott, on uh, on the uh, gauge you use to, to measure this. Um, you know, uh, in some ways, uh, he's on the verge of uh, some truly historic achievements. The infrastructure bill that was passed on a bipartisan basis that he signed into office is something that, frankly, uh, we we would have loved to have signed into law in the Obama administration. President Trump talked for four years about a major infrastructure bill, a com- country badly needs it. Certainly people in the middle of the country can feel it and understand that. Um, and he, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who scoffed when he said that they, he could get that done and he could get it done on a bipartisan basis. He did get it done. Uh, he's, uh, you know, partly down the road to getting the other big piece of his plank uh, together uh, 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 through Congress. He, he has to get it through the Senate yet. Uh, the so-called reconciliation bill with a a lot of uh, strengthening of the social safety net, addressing climate and so on. If he gets those two things, those would be two extraordinary achievements. And, you know, that gets lost in the hubbub about polling and other things. But um, when history looks back, they'll say, oh, those are that was 
major, major progress, uh, certainly major achievements. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that he did a good job. He's done a good job in uh, trying to uh, trying to get this virus under control um, in that uh, vaccines are more, you know, we think of the vaccines. I was talking about this, uh, this with someone today. We think about these vaccines as if they've been around for a long time now. And it's hard to remember that it's only been months since we've had these vaccines. And, you know, I think the administration did an admirable job of getting those out there. And, uh, you know, part of the problem we have now are these uh, new variants that uh, I think are largely a result of people not getting, the people who haven't gotten vaccinated, but also the fact that there are parts of the world where hardly anyone has been vaccinated yeah. that are kind of, you know, places where these variants germinate. That's hard for a president to control. Uh, but nonetheless, he's the man in the driver's seat. He was elected in part because of this virus, and now he has to contend with the the, the difficulties of of, uh, of containing it and the psychological impact of these waves and surges. Uh, so, uh, you know, he, he's bearing some of the, the, uh, the, the impact of that. So, uh, you know, politically, you, you're as astute an observer as anyone. Uh, you know, I, I think he's probably not where he wants to be and Democrats are not where they want to be. Um, uh, and, you know, his hope and their hope is that, uh, the next year will bring stability, uh, relative to the virus and some of the distortions that it's created in the economy will work its way, their way through. And that's, uh, and that the, uh, the, the feelings that Americans have about, uh, their lives and about the economy will be different in a year than they are today. You raise a number of issues that uh, Biden is facing in uh, terms of coronavirus and his legislative agenda. I want to go back to the legislative agenda. You pointed out they passed an infrastructure bill, which I do think is uh, is going to help all incumbents, actually, including the Republicans who voted for it in the Senate. Um, and it'll well, help I'm Biden. quite certain that some of the uh, incumbents who voted against it will be out there <laughs> campaigning on it as well. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, the the piece that hasn't passed, uh, the uh, build back better agenda, uh, as the Biden White House calls it, um, is still very much in limbo, and obviously may be changed in the Senate because of Joe Manchin. Mm -hmm. uh, you had some advice for Democrats on Twitter the other day. You tweeted that Democrats should stop referring to the BBB as huge, historic, and transformative emphasizing instead how it is responsive to everyday challenges people are facing. No one's asking to be transformed. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could expand on that a little, because I think it was extremely astute in that uh, I think what you were getting at, at least as, as I saw it, was politicians and, and, and people trying to pass bills oftentimes overlook the micro uh, uh, interactions people have with the economy or with, you know, their everyday problems and don't tend to think of our national issues or in the macro sense, the way a, a political figure might. Yeah. Well, that's Washington, man. I mean, uh, you know, Washington has its own way of looking at the world, but it's different than the way people look at the world, you know, in, uh, 
in rural Michigan where I spend a lot of time or, or uh, in Kentucky where you spend a lot of time or, or most places in this country, uh, people, uh, you know, when they are gauge the economy, they're not watching the stock market or waiting for the latest report from uh, the Department of Labor or the Bureau of Labor Statistics. They're standing at a gas pump and they're watching the numbers go up or they're standing at a cash register or they're trying to find uh, child care and they can't or they can't afford it, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, there are a whole range of day-to-day challenges that people feel in their lives that shape their view. I do think that if you pull the individual elements of this Build Back Better plan as it relates to things like child care and elder care and preschool education and so on, these are very popular. I mean, because they do address day-to-day concerns of people and that's how they should be pitched. This should not be, you know, I think people fall in love in Washington with the terms like transformative, historic, uh, and so on. I think the aspirations of everyday people uh, for their government are more modest. They just want, you know, they want a little bit of help uh, where they uh, where they need it and can't get it. And uh, and this this legislation would do that. And I think uh, it, it would sell better if you could disaggregate it into its component parts. But that's, of course, the problem with the omnibus bills is, you know, these big bills uh, that and, and it's there for a reason because of the filibuster in the Senate to pass this bill. It probably is going to have to be on a on a partisan basis. And uh, and so you have to use this kind of. This structure, this reconciliation structure, which allows you to do that and avoid a filibuster, the cost of that is you lose the definition Mm. uh, of the individual component parts. I've said it a million times in in cases like this, the parts are greater than the sum. And if you're talking about the sum, you're playing on the other on, on the opposition playing field. If you're talking about the parts, you're talking about your playing field. You're talking on your playing field. Regarding this bill, um, do you believe, I mean, or maybe you want to set the odds or the percentage chance, do you believe they will be able to pass something out of the Senate that obviously meets Joe Manchin's approval, but then could pass the House? It strikes me that the ping pong here is whatever can get out of the Senate would probably not be met with the approval of the progressives in the House. Maybe you see it differently. I'm curious to your uh, strategic view on that. You know, I think in some ways this thing is is too big to fail. Uh, that, you know, I don't think Joe Manchin at the end of the day uh, wants to kill it. Uh, the, the, uh, the irony of the whole thing is that a lot of the uh, a lot of the programs that are contained within the Build Back Better plan uh, would benefit his state maybe more than any other. Uh, given the economics of uh, West Virginia uh, and the status of people in West Virginia. Uh, I don't think he wants to kill it. Uh, And as to your other question, I mean, it really depends. I am, I I thought, you know, if you talk about the progressives in the House, they started uh, with a $6 trillion plan. Mm. They cut it down to $3.5 trillion, and then they agreed to $1.9 
uh, trillion and voted for it, um, they, they've obviously shown a willingness to compromise. I don't think they're going to get to the five yard line here and say, no, we'll take nothing. Nothing is what we're going to do, especially with the prospect that Republicans are going to take over at least one House of Congress next year. I mean, the House of Representatives looks very much like it's going to tip uh, Republican, you know, based on historical norms and the the narrowness of the majority Democrats have now and redistricting. Combination of those things uh, makes it, you know, likely it's going to be a Republican House. So if you say no now, you're probably saying no forever, at least for a long time, to a lot of very significant uh, proposals that Democrats have supported for a long time. Uh, so I think that they will get there, but I think it's going to be a really uh, painful process from here to there. And uh, glad to be a commentator, not sitting in the White House right now. I want to get to that uh, because you obviously did uh, sit in the White House and advise a president and, and passed big legislation and, and went through a lot of the same painful negotiations among factions. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, drawing on that experience and drawing on your personal history with with President Biden, is he handling this about how you thought he would? Is he doing better, worse? I mean, you, you dealt with him as vice president. Being, pre- being in the big chair is a different job. Do you think, is, is he operating this presidency the way you expected? Yeah, I think so. Look, some of the some of my high expectations for him have been met. The the you know the way he's navigated uh, this thicket um, to get the infrastructure bill, for example. You know there were uh, you know there were you remember earlier this year, Scott. A lot of Democrats were saying, "Why are you even talking to Republicans? They'll right. never they'll never come along on this." And um, uh, you know, lo and behold. Uh, he he got that done by being patient and persistent to the point where even uh, your friend and, and client, uh, Senator McConnell, voted for the, the bill. I'm not sure that he's that eager to talk about it these days, given the weird, really weird reaction uh, of some that he shouldn't have voted for it because somehow it would help Biden. Uh, I mean, he <laughs> it, it's going to help hundreds of millions of Americans who have to get from place to place. And, you know, this is one of the things I, I, I want to go off on a tangent here for a second, but I'm, sure. Not, I'm sure it's one you probably agree with. We are in deep, deep trouble in this country if uh, the willingness to compromise is considered treason. Uh, the, you know, the fact is, there is no piece of legislation in the history of man that everyone feels good about, that every person can say, I'm 100 percent excited yeah. about that. That's not how democracies work. That's not how the legislative process works. And I applaud, you know, Senator McConnell and the other Republicans who voted for this in the Senate and the 13 who voted for the infrastructure bill in the House. And I am I am completely floored that. Uh, you know, there were people in the House who called for the disciplining of members of their own caucus for voting for roads and bridges for their own community. I think the issue for Republicans 
And I, by the way, I agree. I think McConnell made the right call on infrastructure, as did the other 18 Senate Republicans who voted for it. Uh, but I think the issue ultimately came down to one of timing because it ultimately passed and was signed into law in the immediate aftermath of the 2021 elections where Republicans did better in, across the country than, than uh, 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 people ever thought possible, winning Virginia and nearly winning New Jersey and elsewhere. And so for Republicans who are looking at it purely through a political lens, they felt like, you know, on that election night, you and I were together on election night. So you put Biden on the ropes. The Biden presidency is on the ropes. It's obvious the American people are rejecting it. And then this was a bit of a of a revival. These were the shock paddles that showed up and yeah, no. back in business. So I, I think I think to me, the reaction to it was really born more out of the timing. If it had passed the week before or two weeks after or been signed into law, you know, with some separation, maybe, maybe it would have been different. Maybe, although I think if it had passed the week before, there would have been those who have said, hey, you just screwed Yunkin in uh, Virginia. And uh, so there's always, I mean, the real issue and the one you raise is, and this is, I think, what makes people so cynical about politics is there is a sense that what goes on in Washington is all about power, who can, who holds it and who can retain it and not about the day-to-day concerns of everyday people. There is a sense that there is this ongoing battle between the red team and the blue team, and everything is done in service of that game uh, and not in service of the day-to-day concerns of the American people. This bill uh, very much addresses the day-to-day concerns of, of the American people. And as I I said only half jokingly earlier, I guarantee you there will be Republican members who voted against it for the reason you say, because they didn't want to help Biden, who will be out there at ribbon cuttings, who will include it in their newsletters, who will say, hey, you know, Highway 16 is being rebuilt uh, thanks to, you know, uh, what we've done in Washington. And the cynicism of it is not lost on people. Uh, You know, I, I think it's uh, it's kind of, you know, and I, I, it seems worse to me now. It's, it's, it's always been the, some element of this. It seems worse to me now. And that's threatening to the whole experiment of democracy, not just one party or the other. Well, you raise the specter of something I've written about and, and think about a lot, actually. And it's the, it's the era of platformless politics where, if you if you truly don't have a platform, if you truly aren't really running on a governing agenda, which in 2020, literally, the Republicans had no platform. They were literally just running on a personality. Well, that, that is carried over to now. So if you have no true governing agenda, then you would see everything through the lens of, you know, we have to win so they can lose and, and vice versa. In McConnell's case, what I've heard him say, and he said to me personally on this podcast, he said that he viewed the uh, infrastructure bill as part of the core governing responsibilities of the federal government. You know, he, you know, he, he harkens back to Henry Clay, internal improvements. You know, this mm-hmm. is something we're supposed to do. So it wasn't really an option for him on not to do it. And he feels like they got significant concessions in it and got it down into a manageable package that, uh, that he could vote for. And, and he thought it was his job to vote for it, but that's part of his governing agenda. So many Republicans and some Democrats, I'm sure too, don't really have a governing agenda beyond, you know, punishing the other side and uh, and winning the next election or holding power for the sake of holding it. So someone else doesn't, which is different than saying I'm going to hold this office because I'm going to do A, B and C and, and one, two and three. But I, I do think. 
One thing I want to just insert here is uh, the the first and greatest Republican, Abraham Lincoln, in the middle of the Civil War, uh, laid the groundwork for the Transcontinental Railroad, uh, created the the, uh, National Science Foundation to promote uh, science and technology and and land-grant colleges so that higher education would become affordable. Uh, I mean, these are still, you know, infrastructure, science and technology and education, still uh, the foundation of progress today. And it was his vision that uh, these were things that only uh, only government could help facilitate. Uh, and so he supported them. That's a great tradition that Republicans should embrace instead of shred. It, it, it You know, the. I think you raise excellent points, and I never thought I'd live to see the day in my own political career when building a road was somehow a negative item. I mean, how how many campaigns have you worked on where if a politician could build a road, it was like, (laughs) you did an amazing thing, and now it's being viewed negatively. But I I also think it, 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 those kinds of things have become secondary as politics has become a vehicle to fight culture war. And so yeah. for a lot of Republicans, the most important thing in the country right now is not roads or bridges. The most important thing is, is you defeat the people who are trying to jerk the country drastically to the left. And so the highest and best use of politics is culture versus governing agenda or infrastructure or anything else you might come up with. Do you think there are some Democrats who also believe that? Or uh, do you think that that is contained on the right right now as a motivating item more so than on the left? Um, I do think it's a motivating item uh, of the right more than the left. There, you know, I, I think there are cultural issues uh, and identity issues on the left that uh, obviously have gotten and uh, uh, a lot of airing. I, I think there, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that I can ar- articulate it exactly right, but um, there is a dynamic in the country that uh, where where people, uh, particularly I think on the right in this case, uh, see these culture wars as a zero sum game, feel like they're under siege, uh, you know, all this talk about the changing nature of demographics in the country, you know, most of the, mo- you know, the, the ex- exodus of people from rural areas to metropolitan areas, um, you know, there's created a kind of state of of loss, uh, and um, and that has been exacerbated by a kind of infotainment industry and politicians who have exploited it. I mean, Trump's politics are very much, you know, what did he, you know, what did he say on January sixth? You know, if 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 you don't, if we don't fight, you're going to lose your country. I mean, and that's sort of. That's that's the theme that has animated uh, uh, the right, uh, you know, in, in ways that are different than uh, uh, than the left, which, I, you know, I find those the, those themes more aspirational. Uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, you're right that these cultural issues have uh, have become more dominant. And um, and tribal in ways that are 
uh, are destructive. And I, I worry about it a lot. I mean, what you were saying before, uh, you, you know, as, as usual, you're very, uh, you're, you're a great analyst and you're very honest about what you see. Um, and I, I'm sure you describe the mindset of Republicans the same, but you know, when you, the idea that you'd say to the people you represent, your neighbors, you know what, I could have fixed that road, but I had a chance to screw Biden instead, so I did. It's, yeah, I mean, that, but that is what some people not only would say, they would proudly say. I mean, they would say, look, it was my yeah. job to stop Joe Biden, because regardless of your view on this bridge or this road, the highest and best use of my position at the time was to stop the socialist hordes from taking over the country. I mean, that, mm. and, and there's a, there is a definite constituency for that out there without question. Listen, one of the things I remember so clearly was in the early months of the, uh, of the uh, Obama administration, Rush Limbaugh saying, I don't want Obama to succeed. I want him to fail. And that was, there were a lot of, uh, people who were unhappy, you know, that got uh, a lot of brushback at the time. Um, but that's actually, you know, I mean, and I think Trump has had a lot to do with it. That has kind of become a more dominant thought that, no, I don't want, you know, we used to say, well, you know, whoever the president is, if they fail, we all fail. That's not the way large numbers of people, uh, certainly people on the right, think anymore and some on the left i mean when when there's a republican uh president and you know i look mcconnell uh you can set the context any way you want but when he said uh you know his job was to defeat the president when he was speaking to that conservative group in washington that was a pretty that that thing reverberated out there uh because the message was that this is my priority and so, you you know, you say he has a governing philosophy. I have no doubt that he does. But um, that was, the, you know, I think people, a lot of people took away from that, that, that this was his governing philosophy. And honestly, it resonated a lot among the, Republic, uh, the Republican base uh, who said, damn right, I don't care about anything else. I just want to stop Obama. And, uh, man, I don't know how we break this fever. I don't know how we break this, um, you know, um, and, and, but I, I know this, if we don't, um, we are going to have real, real problems, uh, as a country and as a democracy. I, I did want to talk to you, David, about, you know, you, you bring up this, this division in America and, and political divisions and, and I think it was most recently on display in how people saw the outcomes in the Rittenhouse and Arbery cases that were going on at the same time. And we saw people people's reactions based on their politics. You know, my reaction was sort of based on my fervent hope that we may regain some trust in institutions, which is at a, at a real low point in America right now. I, I thought it was a, I thought both cases were victories for institutions in that juries work, the criminal justice system ultimately, rendered decisions based on evidence and not based on anything else, emotional, uh, you know, impulses or political impulses, uh, for sure. I was wondering, how did you see those things? And I was curious to know how you, how you were, were looking at the American people and their reactions to these cases as they were going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they were a lens on sort of where we are, um, 
I would I, look. My view on the Rittenhouse case was that the jury, based on the evidence they heard and the instructions they received from the judge uh, on the law, uh, came to the came to the right verdict. Uh, that's quite separate from the fact of, you know, I, I felt uh, that it, you know, the case itself was a disquieting signal about vigilantism. I mean, there's a 17 year old shouldn't be on the streets, nor should people be rioting on the streets. I mean, both things are true. 17 year old shouldn't be on the streets with a semi-automatic weapon. And, you know, I, I do think that, um, the, the, there's a there's a very strong argument that had he well there's a there's no argument had he not been out there with his semi-automatic weapon uh, three people would not be two people would not be dead and a third would not be wounded um, that's separate from whether under the law he was uh, he was liable and we can argue as to whether the judge should have eliminated or, uh, other potential charges uh, you know. Uh, the the uh, Arbery case, you know, was too based on the evidence, and uh, I was relieved by it uh, because uh, that was such a raw case, and the evidence seemed so uh, compelling uh, there that it would have sent a terrible message if uh, if those men hadn't been held accountable for killing this young man. Um, so, uh, but, you know, this something, you know, no, I know this is, 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 um, you know, it's people will, will criticize me for saying it perhaps, but it, it has to be said. This issue of race does go back to the beginning of our Republic. We've never fully resolved it. The fact that, there was such a sense of relief, particularly among African Americans, but certainly not limited to to African Americans, that that there was a guilty verdict in a case which plainly warranted one, that it was somehow exceptional, um, is is sobering to me. Um, but Scott, I agree with you. Um, you know, we have we have laws in this country, and. Uh, we have a jury system, and in both cases, the jury did the juries did their duty, followed the law, and that should that should be encouraging to people and a good example to people. Yeah, I I agree. I I think that in these moments where you know we we seem to be tearing ourselves apart uh, over politics or cultural issues, or in this case, two legal cases, you know, what is the, what is the silver lining of this and what is something we can draw from it on improvement? And to me, this was a, it really struck a blow for the strength of institutions and had, had Rittenhouse been convicted, I think it would have been a a travesty and had uh, Arbery's killers been let go. I think it would have been a travesty and would have further reduced trust in institutions, which uh, seems like they can't go any lower right now. But so I, I, I'm hopeful that this is a clawing back of trust that our system actually works and uh, and that people will will see the wisdom in hanging our hat on the need for a system that works and the stability yeah. that that brings a country. Yeah, well, we're la- related to that uh, is, um, and this is the thing that, uh, this is a subtext to all of, of, or certainly to these 
two cases is you want your institutions to work. Um, you want to be governed by rules and laws and norms and institutions, um, not by vigilantism. Uh, and, um, you know, I, 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 you know, my concern about, uh, about the verdict in Wisconsin wasn't the verdict itself, which I think was uh, what the case and the evidence presented and the law uh, demanded. Uh, it was the reaction to it that somehow, you know, this is a uh, that this is an affirmation of, of vigilantism. Um, it shouldn't be. That's not where we want to go as a country. And, you know, this issue of institutions, Scott, you know, I've talked about it before. I mean, I've had, you know, uh, you worked for President Bush. Uh, I worked uh, for President Obama. Uh, you and I have different views on some things, uh, but, uh, you know, that is the nature of democracy. I mean, that's why we have elections. That's why we have two parties. That's why we, um, the, the only thing that I can't abide are, um, is, is the disregard for rules and laws and norms and, and the rule of law and institutions. And that was, to me, the danger of, uh, of Trump and, and continues to be the danger of Trump, because I don't think he has much regard for rules and laws and norms and institutions. And I think he, he encourages others not to have respect for rules and laws and norms and institutions. In fact, to believe that rules and laws and inst norms and institutions are uh, conspiring against them. And that is very, very dangerous for the country. Setting Trump aside, who I want to get to in just a moment. I, I know he, you'd love to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. I, I, I'm uh, with you on that. Um, but setting setting him aside for just a moment, though, don't you believe that there are also people on the American left who don't have the same respect for institutions that you have? I mean, I, I know you're a, a, a deep institutionalist, as am I, and as are as are the people that we've worked for in, in most cases. But I, I do think there's a strain, and I don't think it's restricted to one partisan ideology running through America right now, that somehow the system as designed or the system as, as, it, as it has evolved simply doesn't work for me anymore, so I'm, I'm ready to crack it and throw it out and do something else. I, I do think that ran through some of what Trump did. I also think it runs through some of what the progressives think about the way Congress and the federal government currently work. Do, do you think it is... It is a dangerous strain, or do you think it'll pass in the near term? You know, there there's undoubted there are undoubtedly people on the left who who have um, uh, you know who are anti institutions, and uh, uh, you know I, I'm not I, I I'm not here to defend uh, um, you know any of that, but I, I will say that. Um, what I, as I view the, as I view progressives, uh, what they are saying is they want government to be more responsive uh, to, you know, the needs of people. You can disagree with uh, the idea of single payer health care, or you know, which every other industrialized country on the planet has, or uh, on, uh, you know. Uh, free free education from preschool through, a, you know, community college. You can, these are debates that we can have. Uh, you can, 
you know, we can debate about climate. I think it's an existential crisis. Uh, others may have a different view. I don't know exactly how, given the fact of our extreme weather right now. But um, I think what the progressives are saying is these are problems and we want government to respond to them. Um, that is different than, uh, than I think saying, let's tear the whole thing down. And, um, you know, so I, I think the sort of equivalence is, is not there. Um, are there anarchists on the left? I, yeah, I'm sure there are. Um, but you have a wholesale, I mean, Scott, um, I mean, I, I was looking at another poll this morning uh, that said 72% of Republicans said the last election wasn't legitimate, the last presidential election. That scares me. That frightens me because there's no evidence to support that. So this has become sort of, uh, you know, a conspiracy theory that's taken root. That And if you start doubting the fundamental institutions of our democracy... Yeah, there are people on the left who say uh, that, uh, you know, uh, poll taxes and the kinds of things that have been in our history and some of the devices that have been used to discourage people from voting uh, should be abolished. But um, but to say that a, a presidential election that 60 courts had reviewed and, uh, you know, uh, plainly was legitimate. I mean, look what happened in Arizona and, you know, all millions of dollars spent on a crazy audit to find that Biden actually won by a few more votes than originally that that's different. So uh, I'm willing to, I'm willing to, I'm willing to take on anybody uh, left or right, uh, uh, you know, uh, on this issue of democracy, but right now, right now in our history, the, the, the threat is coming from, uh, more from the right than the left. Well, since you raised the issue of the last election, I'm going to raise the issue of the next presidential election, because I do think we should talk about Donald Trump and whether he's coming back. Uh, my my personal view is he is coming back. That would be the easiest decision of all time to run again. Uh, I don't think he would be seriously challenged in the Republican primary. Some disagree with me, but I think as it sits today, and there's a lot of time between now and then, he's obviously... Uh, well positioned to get the nomination. And I and I candidly think he could be elected president again. I Six months ago, seven months ago, I didn't think that. I thought the events of January the 6th made it exceedingly unlikely that he could get anywhere within spitting distance of the White House again. I've, I've, I've revised my opinion. I mean, it seems to me now, uh, and some of this is based on influence of polling that I've seen, I'm, I'm convinced now he could win, although I do believe he gives the Republicans their least likely chance of winning than virtually, you know, any of the other main players you could nominate. Um, so what I want to ask you is this. Do you believe Trump will run again? Do you believe he could win an election? And do you think Joe Biden is the correct Democrat to take him on if that's the direction the Republicans go? Well, the first question, the answer to your first question is yes. I, I, I My presumption is that he'll run, you know, uh, uh, Trump is about as subtle as a screen door on a submarine. He generally tells you what he's thinking. It's clear that he wants to run again. It's also clear that he wants to run for a lot of the wrong reasons, uh, mostly vengeance. But nonetheless, 
uh, he's powerfully motivated by it. And, um, you know, I'm sure he's looking at these polls from around the country. I, Tony Fabrizio, who polls from just released five last week, showing him winning in five battleground states. Uh, so I expect that he is going to run. And I think that he probably will be the nominee if he runs, given uh, given where his standing is now. I mean, everything I say is predicated on the fact that we're sitting here in December of 2021. And uh, that's an eternity between now. Right. Who, who would have predicted Trump, you know, uh, then being being the president, uh, you know, eight years ago? Uh, so, um, eight years ago. Yeah. So, um, uh, as, as to whether Biden is the best candidate, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to judge right now. You know, he, he looks uh, damaged. Uh, I, I will remind you that a year before the 2020 uh, the 2012 election, 2011, New York Times had a magazine cover written by Nate Silver saying, and the headline was, is Obama toast? <laughs> right. uh, which really did make you feel good if you were in that corner at that time. So, you know, um, I mean, there are practical issues and no one that no one can answer. Joe Biden is, is older. And where will he be in 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 uh, 2020? 24. I hope strong and well. And, uh, but you know, who knows? I mean, we don't, we don't know the answer to that. Um, so, uh, it's an unanswerable question. And as he would always say, uh, you know, uh, compared to what don't compare me to the almighty compare me to the uh, alternative. Uh, he may be the best alternative for Democrats at that time, but, uh, only time will tell. Well, I mean, the, the obvious comparisons would be compared to Kamala Harris, compared to Pete Buttigieg, compared to a progressive in the mold of, or maybe Bernie Sanders. You know, obviously the, the contours of it set up uh, fairly obviously. Um, I, you know, I, and I understand why Joe Biden is out telling people that he's he's running for re-election. Yeah, and he'd be nuts to say anything other than that, wouldn't he? Uh, I mean, uh, you don't make yourself a lame duck president eight months or 10 months into your term. Well, you raised the topic and you raised the term and I was going to I was going to go to next, even though he's saying he's running. Do you think there are some Democrats who've already made the assumption that he is a lame duck? And that's why you're seeing some of the posturing that you're seeing right now. Um, I'm sure there are some who who doubt that he's going to run. And uh, and I think that there that that at a minimum, there are people who are trying to prepare for the the exigency that he's not going to run. I mean, it's not a non-trivial chance that he he won't run. And that's been true since before he took office. Uh, so I, I'm sure that that is playing on, on people's minds. Let me shift to the Republicans, because you just interviewed uh, one for your own podcast, uh, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, who's clearly out trying to carve out an argument against another Trump nomination. Yes. It goes something like this. I supported Donald Trump. I was loyal to Donald Trump. I can't support what he did on January 6th. He did lose, after all, to Joe Biden. It would be foolish for us to set up a rematch uh, in which we have empirical evidence Donald Trump can't win it. Is that how you perceive his pitch? Yeah. And, and as a campaign professional, do you think that that has a chance of surviving a Republican primary? You know, I think his bet is that 
either Trump won't run or and if Trump doesn't run that the the uh, the world will divide into uh, and this may be his only bet that that Trump won't run and the world will divide into, uh, uh, you know, a thousand Trump acolytes and someone who can galvanize the other piece of the Republican Party, which is smaller. But in a, a primary process with winner-take-all primaries, if you can, you know, if you can galvanize a base well uh, of your own, while the larger base is being atomized between a whole bunch of different choices, I mean, I guess that's his uh, that's his bet. He says he'll run if Trump runs. Right. He says if he wants to run, he will run regardless of Trump. Uh, he he said in in this uh, podcast, I haven't. Uh, I was going to tweet this out. It was interesting to me. He said, if if we're on the same debate stage, he'll know I'm there. And honestly, it would be fun to watch a debate between Trump and Christie if they had the, the two of them on the same stage, two big personalities. Uh, but, um, you know, I think it's a long shot for him. Uh, I, I think if you speak to most Republicans, there there's a great deal of skepticism about whether he can put this together in a party where Trump still commands, I think, 70 percent, 75 percent of the base. Uh, but uh, the one thing about Christie is he is a uh, he is fearless and he is uh, he is a uh, he is a thoroughbred uh, as a political talent. He's very, very good. He's a good performer. If you don't believe me, just ask Marco Rubio, who. <laughs> Right. Christie, he carved up in New Hampshire, right? Yes, yes. He reduced him to a pile of rubble in a debate in New Hampshire uh, in 2016. So um, so we'll see. But I'm, you know, I I think it's interesting what he's doing. I mean, he's just, he's putting himself out there for sure and um, uh, getting a lot of attention. If you were the chief strategist for the Democrats heading into 24, uh, not knowing exactly whether Biden's going to run again or not, but knowing that um, that his record is going to be, you know, on the ballot, whether he runs or not. Is Chris Christie or someone like that the candidate you would fear the most? Or are there other candidacy styles that you think would have a better chance of defeating the Democratic argument uh, in the next election? You know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. It's well, it's how much you believe there's a persuadable vote out there and how much you believe it's a base election. Um, you know, what Trump's uh, theory of the case was that there are really no persuadable voters. And if he just could get his base out, that he could win. It didn't work out for him in 2020 uh, because even though he got 74 million people out, uh, you know, Biden got 81 million people out. Um, but that was an extraordinary election. Um, you know, personally, yes, I would, uh, you know, you, uh, one of the reasons, uh, Scott, why I believed that, uh, Obama could win, uh, in, uh, in 2008, even early on, uh, when we were talking about the election, he, his concern was, well, what if they nominate John McCain? He's another change kind of candidate and so on. And I, you know, I told him, I, He's not going to be, by the time he gets through the Republican primary process, he's going to have to make so many compromises with the base that it's going to, he's going to have to contort himself in ways that, 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 would, uh, that would make... He's not going to be the John McCain of 2000 right. who ran against uh, 
who ran against uh, Bush. But if he had been, he would have been a more formidable opponent. If Mitt Romney could have run as Mitt Romney truly is, which is a center-right Republican, uh, he he would have been a more formidable opponent in a general election uh, than uh, than he turned out to be. But he couldn't have gotten through the nominating process that way. Uh, so yeah, I would fear a center-right Republican who is more uh, pragmatic, who who wasn't as uh, you know, a dogmatic uh, in, in, you know, not a Ted Cruz, not a, but um, that, that is still my belief that that would be, because I think that kind of candidate would cut into the suburbs. I mean, look at Youngkin. Yeah. Uh, that kind of candidate is, th- you know, where Democrats have made their greatest gains in recent years is among suburban voters. If you nominate a candidate who appeals to those voters, uh, that really is problematic for Democrats who have not made, who, who continue to diminish in support among rural voters, an issue I think they need to address. So, yeah, I think that kind of candidate would be worrisome. I think the the principal issue with the Trump strategy of turning every election to a base turnout election is they never seem to factor in that you're also motivating the other party's base as well. And I, Absolutely. I fully admit that a lot of people were motivated to vote for Donald Trump. And I'm only moderately good at math. But I also see that he motivated a whole bunch of Democrats who don't normally vote either to turn out. And it turned out uh, to be a loss of seven million votes. And so I, I, I do think there are persuadable voters, maybe not a ton. But what Yunkin showed is that there are people who have been voting Democrat the last two cycles will show up and vote for a Republican that they you know, seem to have something in common with who seems to be responsive. Uh, to their needs. And it didn't cost that Republican a single thing in the rural counties. In fact, he did better than Trump did in the rural counties, which I thought was actually the most instructive thing about the Virginia elections. I actually don't think that people want a president who from day one divides the country and writes off half the country and demonizes half the country uh, I don't think that's how people think of the presidency. And you asked me at the beginning how I would evaluate Biden. That's not how Biden views the country. And I do think that's to his credit. Um, he's not a guy who, who, uh, who you know, demonizes his opponents. Um, he's not a guy who um, looks to inflame uh, division. I mean, I, you know, you, his nature isn't that way. And I don't think he views the presidents that, that way. And honestly, I don't think I've ever seen a, a president other than Donald Trump in my lifetime who has viewed the presidency that way. Uh, We have a couple of minutes left, David, uh, and I want to be respectful of your time today, but there were a couple of other issues in your life that I wanted to bring up that uh, I find personally uh, admirable about what you've done with your career that I I thought it was worth us discussing. Uh, One is um, your running of the Chicago Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago. I was uh, honored to be a fellow there uh, last fall uh, during a great the fellow, election. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we had we had a, a even though we were off campus and virtual, it was still a, a fun experience to do it. I was curious if you'd be willing to sort of comment on uh, why you took the job. It's not easy. There's a lot of fundraising work to be done. You got a lot of personalities to balance, and being part of a university atmosphere can be uh, tedious. Uh, you know, at, at times. Uh, for people like us who've been in, in political campaigns. But I was hoping for you to, to reflect on it now that you've done it for a few years, why yeah. it's important, and what do you think the future? Because we have a few IOPs now. We have the one at Harvard, Chicago. There's a few others out there. Tell me about why you think these things are important. 
Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I was on the board of the Harvard IOP, which is the grand old, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of gold standard, uh, having been started by the Kennedy family in honor of, uh, of President Kennedy uh, back in the 60s. Um, listen, uh, I, I started this at the University of Chicago nine years ago um, because uh, having worked in campaigns, um, I found myself being really inspired by the young people that I met. Uh, young people are skeptical, but they're not cynical. And uh, I find this generation of young people really, really uh, uh, engaged in thinking about the world beyond themselves. And, uh, and, and I was inspired by them. And I, I knew I was done with my campaign days because there's nothing I was going to do that would top uh, working for uh, a president and helping reelect him. Uh, but, uh, I didn't want to stop working with young people and, uh, you know, it's been an incredible experience and it, but partly through the generosity of people like you, Scott, who, who, who have participated here. Um, but we've had, you know, thousands of programs. We've sent thousands of young people on paid internships. We have fellows like yourself who mentor these young people. And the result of it is we've seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people pass through this program who have gone into some, in some form or fashion, the public square, whether it's as a candidate or an aide or a, a journalist or, uh, you know, working for NGOs or uh, going to work at the state department or, or the CIA, or, I mean, we, we, and it's just such a gratifying thing to see these very smart and well-motivated young people leaning in and becoming part of this process. Uh, and I think the process will be stronger in future years because of, uh, of young people. So my feeling is it's torch passing time. Uh, and my greatest purpose, my best use is to try and uh, be part of that and, and, and encourage these young people to grab that torch and, and run, run with it. And uh, it's happening. And um, I'm really, I, I feel so uh, uh, fortunate to be part of it. One other area of your life that I think uh, a lot of people may not know about is the work that you and your wife have done on raising money for epilepsy. You have a, a foundation called Cure Epilepsy because of the uh, affliction suffered by your daughter. I was hoping mm -hmm. you might talk a little bit about the charitable work you've done. Uh, and uh, all the people who've stepped up to the plate and maybe give us an update on uh, the, the status of it and, and, uh, and uh, how, how that's gone for you, you know, through during the pandemic and, yeah. you know, when a lot of charities. Well, Scott, you know, uh, a, a lot of causes are born out of heartache and loss and tragedy. Uh, my daughter, Lauren, <clears throat> excuse me, was born uh, and uh, healthy, seemingly healthy, beautiful, angelic, lovely little baby and seven months into her life she started having seizures my wife found her blue and limp my wife susan found her blue and limp in her crib and she um thought she had died um uh, only to find out that she had just had a seizure and was uh, in a in a post what they call post ictal state and susan scooped her up and took her to the hospital and uh, where we we witnessed our first seizure and Lauren would have thousands uh, in her childhood, completely defined her childhood, our family's life, our, my two sons who are younger than her. 
um, and um, you know battered her her uh, her her young still formulating brain and and none of the drugs worked none of the surgeries worked brain surgery and and Susan was so exasperated more than exasperated so furious and heartsick about this that she started this this organization cure epilepsy and it has become the largest private funder of epilepsy research in the world mm. uh, she's raised uh, you know, I think at this point, more than $80 million for epilepsy research. And she funds cutting edge research uh, that uh, where, you know, you, scientific theories that uh, need proving so that they can get funded by the NIH and others. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've made progress not fast enough for Susan's taste or mine, but um, one of the things we're doing is working with the Pentagon uh, on research about how to stop penetrating brain injuries of the sort that are the signature injuries of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan from creating uh, seizures because a high number of people who have penetrating brain injuries end up having epilepsy. So how do you interdict that and stop that from happening is research that we're working with the government on. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's uh, it's slow. We make some uh, progress in various areas. Um, but our goal is to cure this. And, um, and as Susan always says, uh, that will be Lauren's legacy when people don't have to suffer the way she has suffered. Well, I know a lot of people are grateful for your all's uh, engagement in this. And, uh, and uh, I certainly uh, wanted to give you a chance to talk about it because of how important it's been in, Thank in, so, you. Many, in so many lives. Thank uh, you. Well, we... let me, let me just, just to put a punctuation on that. Um, my wife is is a hero, and when she said to me, "We're going to start a, a national research foundation," and she was there with two other moms at our kitchen table, I thought this is preposterous. You can't just start a national research foundation, and she was so determined. And what I learned, uh, Scott, is the uh, just the power of a mother's love mm -hmm. is is the greatest force on earth. And she made this happen. And um, I, I just am so proud of what she's done. Truly, a uh, truly remarkable uh, effort. David, you've been a, a terrific guest and we've covered a lot of ground. But before we go, we have to do the famous lightning round uh, here on the Flower Country podcast. So short answer or one answer only. I'm going to hit you with a lightning round. Number one, White Sox or Cubs? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I started with that one because I know you have season tickets to both. <laughs> I do. Yes, I do. I'm from New York. I don't have that tribal thing here. So, <laughs> All right. Uh, favorite moment in the Oval Office with President Obama when you were serving as his advisor? Um, it wasn't in the Oval. It was, it was well, the passage of the Affordable Care Act. I, I was, it was right next to the Oval because I was in my office and I was crying because of what happened with my daughter and the fact that we almost went bankrupt trying to finance her medical care when she had epilepsy. So uh, that that was that that night meant a lot to me. All right. David Axelrod is hungry for lunch and he's in Chicago. Is he going to Superdog or Aw Chaval? Uh, well, super. if that's my choice, it's going to be Superdog, man. You know that. <laughs> All you right. know that. Well, I know you're a frugal man. You may not want to pay 40 bucks for a hamburger. So. <laughs> yes, no kidding. 
Who will be the next Democratic Speaker of the House? Uh, I really don't know. I mean, I think if you ask most people in Washington, they'd say Hakeem Jeffries from New York is likely to be the next Democratic leader and ultimately the next speaker. But All I right. mean, there are there are plenty of other. There's a lot of talent in that House uh, caucus who are just waiting for the older generation to uh, to move on. And I, I think you're going to see a lot of people emerge there. Major fight going on in American culture right now. So we need to get you to weigh in. Are you siding with Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen in the uh, dispute uh, that's been raised lately by uh, by Mr. Pippen? Yeah, you know, um, it's really hard if you're in Chicago to side against Michael Jordan. But what, what the, I know this is a lightning round, but I'm the anti-lightning round guy. Uh, Michael Jordan uh, was the greatest competitive athlete I've ever seen, the greatest basketball player of all time. Um, how he dealt with and treated his teammates and so on, I have no idea. And, you know, I always say I, I'm with Charles Barkley. I don't root for these people based on their character. I root for them based on their athletic prowess. He was the greatest player of all time. And Scotty was terrific. Scotty was a great player. Jordan was the best of all time. And I was privileged to watch him play. What book is currently on your nightstand? Oh, well, I'm reading one uh, right now called Risk by uh, uh, General Stan McChrystal, who's going to be here at the IOP uh, this week, about how leaders need to assess and deal with uh, with risk. But I am uh, I, I've got a bunch of lighter reading that I'm looking forward to once uh, once uh, the quarter ends here. Final question: Will the United States Supreme Court overturn Roe versus Wade in the next session? My guess is they, that they will they will take a deep uh, uh, bite out of it, uh, and uh, that. But if 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 Chief Justice Roberts has his way, he he will find a way to um, navigate it so that it isn't a uh, you know entirely an overturning of the law, but. Um, there are clearly people on that court who have uh, strong feelings or strong views about Roe and its appropriateness, and they're, they're there in part because of it. So clearly, uh, abortion rights in this country are going to uh, are going to take a, a hit, at least at, in terms of federal law, um, and uh, we'll see how it gets fashioned. All right, that's it. You survived the lightning round. You've been a terrific guest. David Axelrod, thanks for coming on the Flyover Country Podcast. Scott, it's always a pleasure to be with you, man. All right, we'll see you on TV, brother. Thanks, okay. David. Okay, see ya. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at scottjenningsky on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. 
cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings.